Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in again if you're somebody that's been here before. If not, welcome to my channel. I'm so happy to have you here and I hope that you stick around and love my channel and just keep coming back. The idea for today's video actually came from a couple of different places. One of my really good friends that I met through doing these videos is somebody that had reached out to me and asked me if I knew anything about a man that was connected to the mafia guy that I'm doing tonight. And as much as I tried to help her, there was nothing that I could find for her. She had already done such amazing research. I literally came up blank. Every single thing I sent her, she already had. But it made me interested in the guy that she was researching and there really wasn't enough information on the guy that she was researching but there was some information out there about an associate of his so here we are tonight i also got a comment on my youtube last week and they were asking about earlier generations of mafia members and i had actually been thinking about that because we always hear about these mafia guys that you know they're in the mafia that was created by Maranzano and Luciano and we very very rarely hear about the guys that were around before that so we know that there was a mafia before Maranzano came around so I had never really heard anything so let's get into tonight's episode. I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce a lot of names in here. Because unlike modern day mafia guys, these guys didn't bother to change their names to more Americanized names. And not that they have any obligation to Americanize their name or their culture, but I just am going to have a hard time pronouncing it. So I'm sorry if I mispronounce the crap out of these guys' names. Josue Gallucci, also known as Lucariello, was born on December 10th, 1864 in Naples, Italy. His parents were Luca Gallucci and Antonia Cavallo. I've been learning Italian, so I'm here to tell you that means horse in Italian, Cavallo. So maybe her family owned a lot of horses or maybe they sold a lot of horses or they had a really nice horse. I don't know where it came from, but it's super interesting because Cavallo does mean horse in Italian, so now you know. He arrived in New York City from Rotterdam, the Netherlands on March 11th, 1892. There's a rumor that Gallucci had just killed a man before coming to New York, which insinuates that he left Italy because he was fleeing from the murder that he had just committed in Italy, but he publicly adamantly denies this. I also don't think it's true because I can't find anything from the police saying that they confirmed that this was a suspicion that they had, but I do see them confirming that he left Italy for a second time on July 24th, 1896. So if they suspected that he committed a murder, I feel like he, they would come out and say that. It is also possible, though, because I don't know why there was a police report in the first place. So it's possible that the suspicion that a murder took place is why the police report existed in the first place. So, I mean, what do I know? I know nothing. So this is all just hearsay. So it's 1896. Lucariello is securely in the United States and he's 32 years old. These are the days before any kind of records really existed, especially in Italy, so we really don't know anything about his upbringing. We have no idea what kind of schooling he went to, we have no idea how much schooling he completed, we know nothing about his childhood, we only know what happened once he arrived in America. 
Literally, the recording of this man's life started at age 32, when he arrived in America without his parents. We don't know what happened with his parents. We don't know if they passed away. We know nothing. And supposedly, he's fleeing a murder. So it's pretty safe to say that he's involved in some sort of crime back in Italy, where he grew up as well. Colucci opened up a grocery store and operated a fruit stand on Mott Street in Little Italy. On April 19th, 1898, at around 2 p.m., Samasta Orlando, his wife, wife and his daughter went over to Samasta's stepdaughter's apartment. She lived on Mulberry Street in Little Italy and they headed over just for a visit. They immediately ran down the stairs from the second floor onto the street screaming that they had found his stepdaughter murdered. Josephine and Selma was found with her throat cut and the middle finger on her right hand almost severed. The injury to her hand is most likely caused because she put her hand up trying to protect herself from getting cut and her finger was injured when the knife hit her hand instead of her throat. That happened the first time, but she did end up having her throat cut from ear to ear. There was jewelry, including earrings, a watch, a chain, a gold ring. All of it was missing, and there was a back window that the murderer could easily have escaped out of after the crime, so police didn't have anybody that saw anybody coming out of the apartment afterwards, but it was very easy for somebody to get away if they did go out that back window. Two glasses had beer in them and there was a third glass that wasn't used but it's pretty clear that the reason that it was there was for beer so it was super sketch because she lived alone nobody really knew why she had three glasses set out nearby there was a razor one of those flip open razors and a pocket knife both of them were covered in blood and both were open it's not really specified but for some reason they made it clear that it was the pocket knife that had been used in her murder nobody in the apartment building had heard absolutely anything nobody had a clue what could have happened they didn't even know that josephine was back in her room earlier in the day neighbors noticed that she was having a conversation with two men one of those men was older and there was a younger man as well and nobody recognized them she was standing in the doorway to her apartment while she was having this conversation and it seemed nice enough she was laughing and joking around with them but people in the building noticed it because they just didn't recognize these guys and this was a building that you didn't really see people that you don't recognize in the hallways somehow i have no idea how because i don't know if we'd be able to do it nowadays but somehow back in those days with no technology whatsoever they were able to identify these two men that she was laughing and joking around with. Police identified these guys as Raffaello Anacario and Anthony Napara. Again, I'm so sorry. I'm botching these names. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry. But they arrested these two men and they let them go shortly after because they had nothing to hold them on. There was no proof. There was no link. There was nothing. Josephine had also been in an argument that morning with an older man that was sort of a janitor in the building. It's not mentioned what that argument was about. I don't think very many people know. But that man, Fernando Carmine, was arrested and he was also let go shortly after. Last but not least, Josephine had lunch around noon with her boyfriends, who was none other than Gallucci. Gallucci gave them an alibi immediately. He was at work. It was a solid alibi. People remembered seeing him there. He also said that he had no fights or problems with her and he would have no reason at all to hurt her. Although people in the building actually knew him already because he was around so often. He came to her apartment 
almost every day. He left work to come and have lunch at her apartment. So that's an indication of how often he was around. And yes, people noticed a lot more in the days before everybody had their cell phones out and their eyes were glued to the ground while, whenever they're walking around. So it's not that crazy that people recognize people that are in and out a lot where they're not looking down at their phone all the time. So that's the reason for that. Nowadays, sucks. Back then, people noticed things, cared about other people. And because everybody recognized him, because nobody had heard anything remotely tying Gallucci to this, they let him go as well. Even though the police let these guys go, Gallucci and the two men ended up being formally charged for the murder. Gallucci was brought in front of a grand jury, and they ended up dismissing all charges. Even though he was found not guilty for the crime, something didn't feel right to it, though. Their radar is going off hardcore at this point. They could just tell something's up with this dude. Even if he didn't kill that girl, or even if the jury says that he didn't kill that girl, something's up with him. I don't feel right about him. The same way that we're not really able to look into his history in Italy, neither was America when he first arrived. American authorities really knew nothing about this random dude that all of a sudden appeared on their radar, and one detective, Joe Petrosino, is like, there's no way, there's no way that this guy just started committing crimes. He is definitely a seasoned criminal, especially based on the way that he carried himself in court and on the stand. He just does not feel right about it. So he goes and he begs his higher-ups to send word to Italy to find out more information about this Gallucci guy and his life before he arrived in America. When the American authorities got word back from the prefect in Italy, they're told that Gallucci is a dangerous criminal who had been arrested nine times for his crimes, ranging from theft to sabotage, blackmail, and injuries that he had given. He had also belonged to a blackmail gang, and this was constantly on their radar, and police were constantly surveilling this man. They also received word about Gallucci's brother, Vincenzo and Francesco. They made Giosi look like a star pupil. Vincenzo was convicted 16 times. 16 times he was convicted. Imagine how many times he went on trial that he wasn't convicted. Like, how many times has this man been arrested? His crimes include assaults, attempted murder, theft, assaulting police. Dude is not a good dude. <laughs> Francesco's a little better. He had only been convicted six times, so, you know, not that big of a deal. All for the same kind of stuff. All, all three of them are just mobbing it up together in Italy. Police really don't worry about Vincenzo, though, because on November 20th, 1898, he was shot and killed by Francesco D'Angelo and Luigi La Rosa on orders from an Italian secret society similar to the Mafia. They both pled guilty to manslaughter and got 15 and 20 years in prison. Petrosino got word that these guys were no good and immediately starts looking into booting them out of the country because that's what you do. You know, you, you have immigrants, they're not good. You want to kick them out, that's the first thing that he looked at. But he found out that he couldn't do that because the three of them had been in the country for longer than a year. Again, not worried about Vincenzo. Vincenzo had already passed away, so it's just Francesco and Giosi that they have to worry about now. Petrosino also wasn't a newbie. 
he knew the way that Italians worked. He knew it would be almost impossible to get anywhere with us. He said that the Galuchis were only three of over a thousand rascals that came into New York from Naples and Sicily, and that they didn't attract much attention because, as a class, they robbed their own people, and the Italian scheme of fix it myself interferes to throw police off the scent. It makes total sense because I spoke a lot in the Bonanno and Maranzano video about how strict the Mafia was with so much as interacting with non-Italians. It was forbidden. They didn't do business with anybody else, but they also didn't commit crimes on anybody else either. It was all within the Italian community. And it's a long-held tradition of the entire group that even if something bad happens, police is never the way to go. I can attest to that personally. I legit can't stand authorities and have always viewed any kind of issue that arises as much better handled if we can just keep the cops out of it because they don't help any situations. They only make every single situation worse, so you'll never catch me calling the police for help. And that's just the way that all Italians are kind of raised. When Josephine was murdered, it was 1898, meaning Gallucci had only been in the country for two years. By this time, he's already operating a fruit stand and already has a store on Mott Street, which means that he owns the store, so I'm assuming that he didn't come to America empty-handed. He already has two businesses open by this time. Dude came prepared. Like, he, he was someone in Italy, and he was able to just hit the ground running once he got to America. It didn't take long for Gallucci to build up a huge reputation in New York. He just kind of did his thing. He started opening businesses, and he just waited. Giuseppe Morello and Ignazio Lupo were arrested on counterfeit charges in 1910, and those two mafia leaders being arrested and taken out of the game left a gaping hole that Gallucci was more than happy to fill. He had his businesses on Mott Street and on Mulberry Street, and he had a three-story brick house with a bakery and an attached stable. He had tenements and controlled the coal and ice businesses. He had a cobbler shop. He had olive oil businesses. And he controlled the lottery in Little Italy. Before you know it, he had come to be known as the King of Little Italy. Gallucci also started doing what a lot of the recent and present Mafia members do. He started lending money. The user game was strong back then, and Italians don't go to banks. They don't go outside of their own people looking for absolutely anything. So the guys that were lending money within the community were the only resource for a huge population of people, which means that they had the ability to make interest rates whatever they wanted. Gallucci became one of the biggest moneylenders in the area, and he had a strong hold on the numbers racket within the neighborhood as well. He had a bunch of Neapolitan and Sicilian street gangs as his enforcers. Police say that Gallucci's revenue mainly came from his control of the policy plane in Harlem. He also had various gambling houses and houses of prostitution, all in Little Italy. He had a pretty elaborate setup with the lottery. He set up what was passed off to be the New York office of the Royal Italian Lottery, which he ran out of the basement of his house. There were agents everywhere, and they had thousands of tickets that were sold through agents that lived in all of the Italian communities. It was the same setup as the current day lottery. Every month there would be a grand drawing where one person could win up to a thousand dollars, but when they did win, a lot of times they were robbed immediately after winning, so 
there really wasn't much point of playing because even if you did win, you lost it. So I don't know why people kept playing. He was also really heavily involved in the Black Hand extortion ring that existed among recently immigrated Italians, where ordinary Italian people across America would get a letter with a black hand printed on it, and it threatens them if they didn't pay they would die or be physically harmed. People did ignore these notes sometimes, but when they did, their family members would be killed. After a while, people didn't ignore those notes anymore. Most Italians had either had family members that had been hurt, or they seen other families that had members that had been hurt by not paying so people started to just, if they got this letter, they started paying. When we talk about the Mustache Pete's and other videos, like, almost every single one that I've done, I've mentioned Mustache Pete's at least once. Most, if not all of them, belong to the Black Hand extortion racket. They were literally known as domestic terrorists. And it wasn't even in just New York. It was all over America. It was in New York, Chicago, New Orleans, St. Louis, Kansas City. No place was safe from the Black Hand. If there was a population of Italians, there was going to be a Black Hand extortion ring nearby. Gallucci met his one true love, Assunta Repa, and they got married. They had one child together, Luca Gallucci, in 1874. Unfortunately, because Gallucci is from such a long time ago, there's really not information on their courting or their wedding. I don't really know much about it, but I do know that Asunta was a down-ass bitch, and they loved each other a lot. This extortion ring really scared the rest of the American public. I've mentioned this before, but you could see pictures in windows of shops saying no Italians allowed. They would post signs on trees and poles in the area as a notice to alien enemies that all people of Italian descent were ordered by the U.S. government to vacate these certain areas. Governments passed laws that Italians were not allowed to be hired for certain jobs. Jobs wanted ads would say no Italians allowed, no Italians need apply. People working at jobs would straight up leave these jobs if Italians were hired. Films and comic strips depicted Italians as lazy, stupid, barbaric, and as the enemy. There were signs that said, don't speak the enemy's language. They don't know the four freedoms. Specific immigrants would be labeled as enemy aliens, and they'd have their houses searched at random as many times as the police felt like it, even if they never found anything. An Italian poet's words were scrutinized for treachery. Men were arrested and held for months with no cause. Famous Italians, such as a New York Italian opera singer, were jailed with no charges and then just dumped out on the streets. And hundreds of Italians were loaded into army trucks and hauled to internment camps, which were in Missoula, Montana. Six 100,000 Italian-Americans were forced to carry enemy alien identity papers with them at all times. They were the targets of mass lynchings. They were punished for their religious beliefs because Catholics were not welcome. As for the immigrants that weren't sent to the internment camps, their movements were restricted. They weren't allowed to travel more than five miles from their house, which meant that mothers couldn't visit their sick children in the hospital if it was more than five miles away from their house. Families weren't allowed to attend their relatives' funerals. They had curfews, and if they broke any of these rules, they were subject to permanent detention. I want to read directly what was posted in an article from a really famous magazine at the time. In 1924, the U.S.'s immigration quota system was implemented allowing disproportionate numbers of immigrants from desirable, aka white nations, 
a widely read article in Literary Digest declared, the recent immigrants as a whole present a higher percentage of inborn socially inadequate qualities than do older stocks. According to the article, these recent arrivals suffered from feeble-mindedness, deformities, and criminality. In the coming years, the idea of Italian criminality would be baked into public perception by the media's fixation on real-life Italian mobsters like Al Capone and Vito Genovese and their Hollywood equivalents portrayed in movies like The Godfather and Mean Streets. Xenophobic ideas were peddled to the public as Protestant morality. In what looks like an early version of a MAGA campaign, Lawmakers intent on making America white Anglo-Saxon Protestant again maintained that dark-featured Catholics weren't welcomed. A huge part of that was just prejudice. People will always have some group of people to hate, but the black-hand extortion racket had a huge hand in this as well, because that's literally what every Italian-American came to be known for, was the small portion of people in their community that did these atrocious things. It doesn't even make sense though, because it was always two other Italians. No Italian ever sent a black hand notice to anybody of any other descent, but I think people were just always worried that they would be next, and if people could do these horrible things to each other, that they'd start doing it to the people around them soon enough. Another part of the prejudice was because of Mussolini, who had declared war on America and publicly stated that the Italians would be victorious. Another thing that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, because most Italians that immigrated to America were running away from Mussolini and his ideology. So hating them for his beliefs is just stupid. And the crazy thing is, you can literally take this story and slightly tweak it and assign it to almost every race, any nationality, any ethnicity, and it'll work for the ways that people have been treated in American history. It's horrible. Anyway, the whole point of that rant was that Gluji was a pretty big part of that whole thing. The Black Hand Extortion Ring was a huge source of concern for the general public, and the general consensus was that he was the leader of the Black Hand. He's quoted as saying, My enemies say that I'm the head of this Black Hand business, that I run the blackmail bomb business, and that I own all the lotteries. They are wrong. I own bakeries, ice and wood shops, shoe shining, and repair shops in similar places, but I am not the king of the black hand. After a while, it literally felt like he owned all of Little Italy. He had every kind of shop, every kind of store, every kind of product that you could possibly want, and you could buy it all in one little neighborhood in Harlem. Eventually, he started moving into areas that were a bit less profitable, but much more powerful. He allied with Tammany Hall, a group of Democratic politicians in Manhattan that pretty much controlled all politics in New York, unopposed. The city's police and bureaucracy was in control of construction contracts and licenses, and this led Gallucci to register fellow immigrants as voters and sway their voting power towards whoever he liked and whoever he wanted to be elected. This served two purposes. It increased his power, which led politicians to try to base their practice on the things that were important to him, because obviously they're hoping to get his support, but it also led to him having near immunity to the police and authorities. The police and the authorities, they did not want to piss this guy off. You ever see the part of The Sopranos where Tony gets pulled over and he gets a ticket and the cop that gave him the ticket is put on death duty? Yeah, any cop that crossed him would be lucky to get a demotion, and they knew it, so they really didn't mess with this guy. He was well known all throughout New York. 
he always had on a beautiful fitted suit, a $2,000 diamond ring, a $3,000 diamond shirt studs. He was, he was decked out. He regularly gave interviews and was featured in big magazines and newspaper articles. He reminds me a lot of John Gotti. The New York Herald did an article on him once because the reporter said that he knew Gallucci when he approached him. Gallucci said, I have been accused of explosions, kidnapping of children, and other crimes, including murder. My enemies are lying. They are jealous of my prosperity. I am blamed for every criminal deed which takes place here, but it is not the truth. Many of the murders down here are the result of quarrels among the blackmailers themselves. They gamble, which leads to fighting, and they dispute the division of spoils. If a leader thinks another is trying to become boss, that man is marked for death. Giosu Gallucci had another brother, Gennaro Gallucci. Gennaro had been in Italy when Giosu and his brothers left for America. He had been serving a life sentence for two murders, and he was 23 years into this life sentence. In December of 1908, he decided enough was enough. He had served his time, and he dipped out of there. He escaped from the prison and traveled to America, where he lived with Giosu and Asunta. Almost as soon as Gennaro arrived in America, the authorities started getting complaints and reports from Italians on the block regarding extortion practices. Pretty much the blackhand extortion racket that Giosu was accused of having a hand in, they started getting these complaints. Nothing could ever be done, though, because although the police were willing to arrest him, whenever witnesses were informed that they were required to testify in court against him, they backed out and dropped all charges. Less than a year after his arrival to America, in September of 1909, NYPD arrested him for carrying a concealed weapon. Now, remember, we're in 1909, and this is a much different time than today. Records from other countries were non-existent, so American authorities had absolutely no idea about his history in Italy. They didn't know if he had so much as been arrested at all, no less escaped from prison on a murder charge. After they arrested him, they tried to deport him, but they ended up releasing him with a suspended sentence. Because this is the time that Italians are being thrown in internment camps, we can assume that the only reason that Gennaro was able to get out of prison a free man was because of how powerful Giosu was. We talked about how politicians bent to his will, well, the police did just as much, and since Gennaro was living with Giosu, we know they were very tight-knit, and I'm willing to bet my last dollar that Giosu pulled the strongest strings on the planet to get that man released that day. While Giosu was able to get him released, I can also pretty confidently say that he wasn't happy about having to leverage his political power in this way. Giosu had spent the last 17 years building an extremely respectable reputation. He had been opening businesses and fighting against the rumors that he was the head of the Black Hand extortion ring, and other Italians absolutely hated the Black Hand, which is for obvious reasons. They were targeted, their families were hurt, but also because they were very aware that a lot of the prejudice that they experienced from outsiders was due to this racket. So they really don't like anybody that's involved in it, which is why Giosu is denying his involvement in this so heavily. A while after Gennaro's arrest, Giosu's bakery was attacked in a drive-by shooting. All the windows had to be replaced, and cops believed it was because of Gennaro's involvement in blackmailing activities. They also thought it could have something to do with his involvement in collecting protection payments. So, I mean, same thing, the blackmailing, the black hand, he had some kind of involvement in it, and the police knew that that's why people were coming after him. Gennaro lived upstairs with Josu and Asanta. He probably also helped in the bakery business downstairs as well to kind of earn his keep. 
So it isn't far-fetched to believe that the attack on Geosu's business was probably more than likely directed towards Gennaro and his blackmailing activity. While Geosu wasn't happy about having to bail his brother out of jail, at the end of the day, that was his brother. One thing that Italians have always been known for is their strong bonds with everybody in their family. Having a falling out with a family member was always a huge, huge deal for them, and they stuck with their family no matter what. On November 14, 1909, just shy of a year after his arrival in America, Gennaro was shot and killed. A gunman came into the bakery yelling for Gennaro. When Gennaro appeared, he was instantly shot and killed. He was found in the back room of the bakery. A couple of confidential informants told the authorities that it was actually Giosu who had his brother Gennaro killed. And I could see why they would believe that because Gennaro is hurting Giosu's reputation and he's really just messing with his mojo here and it really isn't like Giosu could be like, hit the bricks, boy, bye, get the fuck out of my house. He couldn't really do that. Gennaro had nowhere else to go, so he has to support him because he's his family. But Giosu is convinced that Aniello Prisco is the one that actually killed his brother, and they go to a pretty violent war over this. Aniello Prisco, who's also known as Zopo the Gimp, is the actual leader of the Black Hand extortion racket in New York. Prisco is known in the neighborhood as a terrorist who had been tried for murder on multiple occasions, but same song and dance as all the other Mafia members, always let go due to lack of evidence or nobody willing to testify, something like that. He terrorized his neighbors with these extortion rackets, and everybody moved around in fear that they would be his next target or that their family would be hurt. Even his nickname, Zopo the Gimp, was an insult. Zopo means lame in Italian, and not lame like, oh, you're a loser, you're lame. No, lame like a horse that hurt his foot and can't run. He's a lame horse. Prisku had a disability from when he was shot in 1909, and it shattered the bone on his left leg. When he finally healed from the shooting, which took a really long time to heal, his left leg was a few inches shorter than the right leg, and it caused a pretty pronounced limp for the rest of his life. Even the media hated this guy. They often referred to him as Zobo the Terrible or the Terror of East Harlem. It's thought that Prisco went after Gennaro Gallucci because Gennaro was getting a reputation as somebody that was operating his own extortion racket. He was collecting protection payments, he was extorting local shop owners, and that's clearly stepping on Prisco's toes because Prisco's the leader of the Black Hand and he's the one that does that. It's like when drug dealers say, like, no one else is allowed to sell dope on this block but me. Like, unless you're kicking up some money to that person, you're gonna get beat up if you're in the same business that they're in in the same area, because they want to be the only one making money doing it. They want to be the only source of that particular thing in the area. So, you know, if you're selling on their block, you're gonna get in trouble. And same thing here. Regardless of the power and wealth that he had amassed, Gallucci was no different than any other Italian immigrant at the time, and he started receiving blackhand extortion letters. He refused to pay them, and he had been shot at multiple times, and he had actually gotten wounded a couple of times as well. He definitely looked at it like he's the head of the mafia. He's not going to pay for protection from what? People need protection from his people. But Prisco was having none of that, and he still wanted protection payments from Gallucci. This had been going on for a while, and even though Gallucci had been wounded a couple of times, he was a G. He took it on the chin. Uh, he didn't really strike back at Prisco until Prisco messed with with his family. 
after he killed Gallucci's brother, Prisco hits him up and he's like, yeah, get the point now? You gotta pay me now? And Gallucci's like, yeah, 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 totally, for sure. Let's meet at this barbershop. So he sends one of his guys to the barbershop to meet Prisco and the guy tells him, listen, he's really sick. He can't make it right now. But if you come back to the bakery where he's at, I'm sure you'll be able to talk to him. He made it clear he wants to pay, so just come back with me and we'll go get your payment. So Prisco is like, all right, bet. I've been trying to collect from him forever. He's refused to pay me now, but now that I killed his brother, it seems like he's on board. So I'm going to come through. He heads over to Gallucci's place and he walks into the bakery and him and Gallucci start talking. Gallucci had his nephew, John Russomano, who's also his bodyguard at the time, come in and shoot and kill Prisco. Newspapers following Prisco's death were practically celebrating the fact that he was gone. Headlines in New York printed, Prisco, Lane Gunman meets death at last. Little Italy relieved. And Zopo the Terror dies as he draws his weapon to kill. Gallucci's nephew, John Russomano, was arrested for the murder. He was released on bail of $5,000 after he told authorities that he killed Prisco in self-defense. Both Gallucci and his nephew swore that Prisco came into the back of the bakery demanding $100 with a gun to Gallucci's head. When Russomano pulled out a gun to defend his uncle, Prisco told him, keep out of this or I'll kill you. Russomano fired before Prisco got the chance to get off a shot, and that's why he killed him. Well, that ended the involvement of the authorities on the matter, that was definitely not the end of it in the underworld. Gallucci continued to reign supreme in Little Italy, and his gang of Sicilians, including Giuseppe Morello, who had once been recognized as the boss himself, and his cousins Fortunato and Tommaso Lamonte, ran the streets and controlled all of the gambling and stolen goods in the neighborhood. Even though he had the political clout that he did, the murders, the bombings, the blackmailings in the area, it all started to stack up, and his name was well known as one of the biggest criminals in the area. He was arrested in 1913 in relation to his involvement in a policy game along with 40 other mafia guys. Remember that this is the days before La Cosa Nostra, the American version of the mafia with the rules that had been put in place. It's a whole different world back then. These guys are what are referred to now as Zips. The Zips are the guys that are known for blowing up stores that don't pay protection money. They're known for blowing up cars as dudes get in as a way to kill them. They don't really care much about the collateral damage that gets done. To be honest, I I think that the only reason that the American Lacosa Nostra cares is because they got hit so hard by authorities and they knew that in order to survive, they had to make rules against that because if it kept going on and the authorities kept coming at them as hard as they were, they were never going to survive. All their top dogs were getting arrested and it just wasn't working out. So they had to make a rule where you know, don't kill civilians because killing innocent people in connections to your crime is the easiest way to get the public against you and to get the authorities on your back. So Gallucci definitely was blowing up shops, cars, bars, everything, and anybody that pissed him off was getting blown up. And I'm sure that man has a decent amount of innocent men, women, and children under his belt that he killed or had killed on accident. He was described at the time by authorities and by the media as the leader of the Italian criminals in Harlem. If it was present day, I guarantee he would be labeled as the head of the Lucchese. 
family. This arrest was just the beginning of the end of his good name in politics. He was arrested again in relation to a violation of the Sullivan Act for carrying a concealed weapon, but he was released on $10,000 bail. This doesn't seem like a lot, it seems like small potatoes, but in today's terms, that would be almost $300,000, so that was a really high bail. He was arrested with one of his bodyguards, Joe Chuck Nazaro, as well as his nephew, John Russomano, the one that killed Prisco. Nazaro wasn't released on bail, Gallucci left him there, and he ended up serving 10 months in prison over this charge. Gallucci did bail himself and his nephew out of jail. The Sullivan Act was a law that kind of was the beginning of the end of any kind of legal weapon in New York. It took effect in 1911, and it required a license for any New Yorker to possess any firearm that is small enough to be concealed. It made it a felony to carry any firearm in public that wasn't licensed. The law was named after Timothy Sullivan, who just so happened to be a Tammany Hall Democratic politician. This law is credited with having a pretty decent outcome with reducing suicide rates by gun, but it really had absolutely no impact whatsoever on homicide rates. Because as they say nowadays, the bad guys will always have guns. Whether they're legal or not, the bad guys don't care. It's the good people that follow the laws that have to worry about whether it's legal or not, whether they can defend themselves, because these mafia guys, anyone that's doing crime, they're going to have them either way. So, But it did help in reducing the suicide rate by gun. I don't know if it reduced the suicide rate, period. It just reduced the suicide rate by gun. Um, I, I can't find anything on whether it actually reduced suicide overall, but I mean, that's never a bad thing. Reducing any kind of suicide rate is a great thing. So Gallucci was never tried for this crime, and most people said that it was due to his political capital that he was able to get out of the situation unscathed. On top of the war that he was involved with regarding Prisco's murder, Gallucci had some serious battles on the streets of New York with a rival Neapolitan gang, the Camorra. They were a Navy street gang based out of Brooklyn. Technically, Gallucci was also a member of the Navy street gang. Think of the Navy street gang like a modern day family. The groups in the family fight, but they all belong to that family. The Delgaido brothers belonged to this gang, but they operated in East Harlem, and Gallucci did not give them permission to operate a lottery, since he already had his own lottery going on. Why would he give them permission to do it? Niccolo Delgadio tried unsuccessfully to kill Gallucci, but when he failed, he booked it out of Harlem. He knew he fucked up. <laughs> When he returned in October 1914, he was killed. No charges were ever brought against anybody in relation to this murder, but everybody knew that it was Gallucci that either did it or ordered it. At this point, Gallucci is just getting it from all sides. He's walking a line of possibly going to jail, he's getting arrested, he's at war with Brooklyn, he's at war with Prisco's gang, and now other gambling rings and lotteries are popping up in the neighborhood that nobody ever asked his permission to open. That is not only taking money out of his own pocket, but it's a serious challenge to his authority. If any Joe Schmo can go and open his own lottery and operate in his territory and have no ramifications, what purpose does he serve? But he's already had Delgadio killed, he's already been arrested for carrying a firearm, what is he supposed to do? Just go on a killing spree? The Morello gang, the guys that used to run the streets until Morello went to jail for a while, they had a falling out with Gallucci. They used to run together, something happened, they decided that he was a dick, they didn't want to be his friend anymore, 
So they joined forces with the Kimura gang that was based in Brooklyn. The Kimura gang was into the same kind of stuff that Gallucci was into, and they also belonged to the Navy Street gang, but they also got involved in labor racketeering, which was one of the main ways that the modern-day mafia makes their money. The gang was super rich, but it ran along the same parallels that Gallucci did. They dealt heavily in peddled artichokes and olive oil the same way that Gallucci did, so it didn't take long for them to have some beef. In 1914, when Gallucci was picking up some protection money on First Avenue, he was shot and wounded, and two of his bodyguards were killed. He makes the decision to stop having bodyguards with him altogether. Between all the violent disputes that he's been having, it's becoming known that that position is not one you want to take. No matter how much it pays, people keep dying in that position. He had tens of people killed as his bodyguard, and everybody's kind of like, nah, screw that. He can keep that position. Can't take money to the grave. I'd rather be poor and alive than rich and dead. So you go ahead, you you keep that position. So yeah, Gulluji made the decision to not have any bodyguards, but really the streets made that decision for him. On May 17, 1915, G.O.C. Gallucci was shot with his 18-year-old son, Luca. He was in a coffee shop on East 109th Street in Little Italy. This was a business that Gallucci had recently purchased for his son, Luca, to operate. Luca wasn't the target. It was only Gallucci, but he was shot in the stomach while he was trying to protect his father. Giosu was shot in the stomach and in the neck. This turned into a full-scale shootout because there was five guys that came to shoot him and 15 of Gallucci's men were in the coffee shop. So it was one of those black and white, no sound, old school shootouts going on in broad daylight on a busy street. Gallucci and his son were the only ones that were injured. His son died the next day in a hospital. And the funeral that they threw for this 18-year-old innocent boy who was caught in the crossfires was insanity. It was the biggest funeral that Harlem had ever had up until that point. The funeral was attended by 5,000 people and accompanied by 800 carriages. The last carriages were leaving the church in Harlem when the hearse was arriving at the cemetery in Queens, which if you know anything about New York geography, Harlem is way up north, right below the Bronx, and you have to go all the way south and east in order to get onto Long Island to get to Queens. So that line was probably somewhere between 15 and 20 miles long. Now, this led me down a rabbit hole of researching bridges and tunnels in New York, because when you Google the way to go, obviously, well, I mean, if you're a New Yorker, it's obvious, you would take the Queensboro Bridge. But when you map quest it, the Queensboro Bridge is called the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge, and it wasn't built as per Google until 1929. So I was like, how the hell did they get there then? Because then I Googled the Midtown Tunnel, and that wasn't built until 1940. But I'm like, uh... Of course, I mean, if they're going between Brooklyn and Manhattan all the time, there has to be a way. So how the hell did they do it? So I googled every single freaking bridge, and Google says that they were all built later, but the key is to Google the Queensboro Bridge, not the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge, because screw Robert F. Kennedy anyway, and you'll find that the Queensboro Bridge was built in 1901, so that's definitely how they got there. They took the Queensboro Bridge, and it was about 20 miles from one to the other. Back then, the Queensboro Bridge was called the Cantilever Bridge, which is super cool to think about, because you think about, like, a bridge that I absolutely hate driving on the Queensboro Bridge. Because, first of all, it's super, super thin. 
So, like, there's no outside rail on it. So when you're driving on it, you're on this, like, thin, tiny little bridge. And it's just so possible that you could go over into the water in my brain. That's what's going to happen to me every time I drive on the Queensboro Bridge. So I don't like it because of that. But I also hate it because it's always jam-packed. Because every New Yorker is poor. And the Queensboro Bridge is one of the only two bridges that goes from Long Island to Manhattan without a toll on it. So everybody takes this way, even if it takes a little longer. But it's really cool to think about the fact that the same bridge that I drove to work on on a regular basis was used by people in 1915 and even before that. That's a really cool thing to think about. I also know that some members of my family were involved in building the Queensboro Bridge and he used to talk about how people would fall into the cement as it was being laid all the time and the Queensboro Bridge and pretty much any bridge that is built is kind of like a cemetery as well because they couldn't pull the people out so they would just leave them there and then pour cement over them so yeah i use i used to get to work that way my family built the freaking bridge cool story bro anyway so back at the hospital galucci is refusing to talk to police about who shot his son and who shot him and why we all know that omerta is the way that italians operated even before it became a law so nobody talks to police about anything nobody needs anything from the cops but three days later Giosu galucci died from the gunshot to his stomach. The neighborhood reacted the same way, and the procession for him was insane as well. Rumors started flying about what would go on at his funeral. A lot of sources told the police that his wife had been targeted, so the police came and they attended the funeral in order to watch and make sure nothing crazy went on. They also blocked off a huge portion of Harlem. There was an event held in his apartment that his body was on display and thousands of people filed through the apartment to view the body. Over 10,000 people blocked the streets to watch his body be moved from his apartment to the cemetery. There was 150 carriages that were expected to attend the funeral procession, but they were reduced to 54 by authorities because they feared that there would be violent demonstrations, so they took half the people and told them they weren't allowed to be there. A 23-person musical band followed the procession. Imagine, it's like a parade. That is insanity. Can we talk for a second about how heartbreaking it is that Asunta lost her husband and her only child in one fell swoop? It was pretty typical back then for couples to have, like, a lot of kids. Most of the mafiosi that I talk about on this channel, they have, like, 15 siblings. This woman had one child. He died before his 19th birthday, and her husband died with him. That is absolutely heartbreaking. Before Gallucci and his son left the house that night, Asunta had yelled at them to be careful and told them that she didn't have a good feeling and she really didn't want them to go out. And on top of that, she has to hear that her son was killed because he literally threw his body in front of his father, who had already been shot twice, and that's why he got shot. Her son was heard shouting, shoot me, as they were raining bullets down on him, and he was hoping to save his father, but the both of them just ended up getting shot. Like, my heart seriously breaks for this woman. She lost her entire family. She watched her brother-in-law die in their house. He literally dropped down at her feet after he got shot, and she was a ride or die. She wouldn't even give cops a description of Gennaro's murderer. She was like, uh, do you know who my husband is? Need not you worry, sir. This will be handled. She wouldn't give them nothing. 
this woman was arrested as a material witness when Gennaro was killed. And she still kept her mouth shut. She told the cops that he had only been shot once, but it turned out that he was shot three times. And she pretty much said her original testimony was inaccurate because she was excited. Like, okay, badass, I'm I'm here for it. I'm, I'm amazed. Now let's talk about who killed Gallucci. Generoso Joseph Nazaro was born in Avellino, Campania, Italy in 1890. His parents, Carolina and Luigi Nazaro, had five children. They immigrated to New York in 1901. He was arrested in 1907 for grand larceny and was arrested a whole crap ton of times after that, but his criminal career started in 1907, which is wild because that means he was arrested when he was 17 years old for grand larceny. That's a serious charge. He was arrested with Gallucci and Gallucci's nephew for carrying a concealed weapon, and Gallucci bailed himself out of jail. He bailed his nephew out of jail, but he left Nazaro there. Nazaro ended up serving nine months for that charge, and just before he got out, the neighborhood had like a collection to have him have some money when he got out of prison, but Gallucci just straight up refused to give anything to the collection. When Nazaro got out of jail, he went to Gallucci for the money that he owed him for the work that he did before he went to jail, and Gallucci pretty much just laughed in his face, and he didn't give him anything. A week after Nazaro got out of prison, Gallucci was shot and killed. Joe Chuck Nazaro is the main person that everybody credits for Gallucci's murder. He was known as the bully of Little Italy, and it's suspected that he killed over 20 men. Nazaro was killed in 1917 after being lured to a trolley track by his friends, and he was shot in the chest. They were hoping that the trolley tracks would decapitate him or disfigure him to the point that nobody could ever identify him, but that didn't happen. His killer, Frank Favrola, who he had picked up from jail under the pretense that he was going to kill him, was found guilty of his murder later that year. Gallucci's murder set off the Mafia Camorra War. The war lasted from 1915 to 1917. It was a war that was between the Morello family, a Sicilian faction based in Manhattan, and it was against gangs that included members from Naples and the surrounding Campania region. This was a huge chunk of the Navy Street Gang, mostly based in Brooklyn and Coney Island. They were referred to as the Camorra, and it gives us a pretty good look into why the Mustache Peets always felt the way that they did. I've talked in a few videos about how crazy it is that the Sicilians didn't trust anybody that wasn't Sicilian, and it was always a little hard for me to understand how people immigrated from the same country but didn't trust people from that same country, but only just from a different section of that country. They're literally right next to each other. Like, if there were gangs from New York fighting gangs, from Florida. They, they, they were that close. They're literally right next to each other. They're in this foreign land, but they still don't trust people that aren't from the region in the country that they're from. And this can kind of give you an idea as to why, because a lot of the Mustache Peets were involved in this war. So this is why people from Naples went to war with people from Sicily. In this war, the Camorra got absolutely decimated. And the American-based Sicilian Mafia groups, or the Morello dudes, walked out on top. This war lasted a while, and tensions following the war, even after the war had ended, literally probably lasted until the Night of the Sicilian Vespers took out everyone left that belonged to that era. The conflict started when the Morellos wanted to take over gambling in Manhattan. The Morellos then moved to Joseph DeMarco, who ran a restaurant and several gambling establishments on Mulberry Street. Mulberry 
Irish Street is in Little Italy. Now, this is the point that the Morellos join up with the Navy Street Gang and the Coney Island Gangs because they couldn't take down DeMarco alone. The combined group was eventually able to take down DeMarco, who had Joe Chuck Nazaro with him on the night of his death. Nazaro was killed soon after. The Camorra Gang didn't fall to the Mafia. They literally fell to their own people. The authorities got pretty heavily involved after a huge amount of people started to die from this war. So they convinced people within the Camorra gang to give up people in their own gang. There's so much back and forth that went on in this war, but at the end of the day, it was the Sicilian Mafia that walked away as the victors. And to the victors go the spoils, which is why the Sicilian Mafia is the one that reigns supreme today in 2022. So that's the story of Josu Gallucci, the most powerful mafia figure in New York at the time, known as the King of Little Italy, who set off an entire mafia war even after his death. Thank you so much for watching. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you haven't already, please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, do all the things, and I'll see you next time. Bye! I'm gonna go get some more.